Gotta stretch, gotta stretch, gotta get ready for it. <laughs> Podcasting is such physical exertion. It really is. It Good morning. Really is. Good morning. Uh, artificial intelligence. Scary stuff. It is scary stuff, but I do uh, spend some time, not a lot of time, but a little bit of time thinking about what things could make life easier. And I'm like, what is something, you know, getting up in the morning, what is something AI related that could help getting up in the morning? become easier. I don't know. I don't have an answer for this. You know, it's weird thinking about artificial intelligence because it's not something I would have said was scary until maybe recently, even though we have been warned about robots for a long time. But if you boil it down, it's technology and technology is both helpful and hurtful at all stages. Like it can go all the way back to Facebook and like, you know, yeah. The documentaries on that and like what social media, the positive and negative things that social media can do to your brain or our phones and the positive and negative that come with them. And when you look back to a time where they weren't here, it was something that was harder. And now there's, but there are conveniences and eases that come with having it. And so I think this whole conversation around AI right now is really just like, how do we maybe not make the same mistakes we've made in the past with technology where it's just like, look, something new, use it. There are serious consequences with it. So like asking what those are before it's too late. Yes. Which I think I want to give a little background on this panel because then there's a few things that are brought up on it just to give a little insight into, um, before we jump into listening to the panel, but background. This panel is presented by our partners at Hollywood Health and Society that we love very much. The Norman Lear Center. Yes. And they have been longstanding partners of ours. And this year worked with them closely to pretty much create their own track. That's exactly what they did. Great. Yeah, we Normally in the past, they do one or two panels. Um, and we had enough sort of conversations that we wanted to have that connected to them and research that they had that we actually presented to them. Would you want to present a track of panels, which just goes along with the syndication project track that we've done in the past, which is our nonprofit. So yeah, they are going to have a number kind of our bigger conversation presentations that revolve around social issues and representation on TV. And one of their current, um, initiatives has to do with AI, yep. which they were very excited about this panel. And I think it's interesting to think that when they first started talking to us about it, which I know it's something that we've wanted to do for a while as well, it was very much about AI in storytelling, actual representation on, t- yes, on TV, actual shows that deal with AI or characters, storylines, whatnot. And then the past few months, the panel itself changed to how AI is affecting the industry as a whole right now. And that it's a huge part of the writer's strike Correct. and that it's kind of being, has been ignored as something that people need to worry about. And writers are holding strong that it needs to be negotiated as of now, which makes sense. Yeah. If you listen to last week's podcast on WGA on strike, they kind of bring up that this wasn't something they were super concerned with even a long time ago or when negotiations started. And then they brought it up that they just wanted to have oversight over how much it was used. And 
it didn't seem like it was going to be a big issue until they got to the end of negotiation and the AMPTP kind of said no. Yes. <laughs> like we want to yes. hold on to it. And I think I heard Chris Kaiser say, you don't protect something that's not valuable to you. So it's more the unknown on both sides, I think. And the idea that they think there is opportunity to use it, the AMPTP, and the writers are trying to protect their work. So there's an interesting metaphor that Greg uses about a can of gasoline. (laughs) (laughs) Funny that you should listen to the podcast about, but yes, that it has grown in importance, I think, in that conversation and become a bit more, what are your opinions about AI in workforce usage and, and things like that? which goes back to the, like, the robots are going to take over. (laughs) Well, and I think one of the things that's interesting that comes out of this conversation that really clicked in my head was the thought that we should use technology to make better choices, not let them make choices for us. Yeah. And to me, that was like, oh, yes, because technology is so good in so many ways. That's social media, all AI, everything around it. So great and so useful in so many ways. But when you start giving it the opportunity to make choices or make you feel things, that's when you're giving it power. And that power should not be given to something that is not thinking and feeling. Correct. Um, So yeah, the panel, this panel, I think you asked kind of like, like most things at the festival, uh, there were lots of shifts and changes. This one, I think, had changes for two reasons. One, it going from representation on TV to kind of writer's position with it. So there's an actor from the TV show Upload on it, Kevin, that is the show Upload is about technology and artificial intelligence and things like that. So the representation of that as a storyline and as a plot point. Um, And then there's a expert, but then there are just writers and their opinions. And so there was an ebb and flow to the makeup of the panel in terms of who's talking about what. Yes. And why. And it was a great array of opinions that all come together that I really enjoyed. I also enjoyed that you had your own on the ground tutorial on AI, if you will, which I just found very fascinating and would like for you to one, tell me about this tutorial and then also your background. It was it. more, a uh, oh, what's it like? Kind of like a show and tell than okay. a tutorial tutorial, but Bo Willeman, when we were talking about the writers and sort of the use of AI and specifically what has been talked about the most is chat GBT, which I have heard about, honestly, probably only for the last few months. I think it has been around longer than that, Yeah, but the last few months and I didn't really, I have not been curious enough to download the app or do anything with it. I think the first time I heard about it was South by Southwest this year and a panel about Mrs. Davis with Damon Lindelof. But it's the idea that it's giving you like all of these answers and it can work for you. And I think for the writers, it's the idea that ChatGBT could like write a script if mm-hmm. you asked it to. So it's sitting in the lobby of the hotel. Bo Willeman was telling me that he plays with ChatGBT all the time. It can write sonnets. <laughs> it can, And then it can adjust itself. So like I had a, he, he was like, give me four like weird word, like words that have nothing to do with each other. And I think it was like brownies, firefly, rainbow guacamole and it wrote a poem <laughs> about it um i would like i would like to hear yes, that poem. it's great um but the thing that was really kind of terrifying to me was he asked it to write a mission statement for atx tv festival and it came pretty darn close to our mission statement if i'm being honest and then he had it write some panel descriptions and he had it specifically write a panel description for 
a writer's strike panel at ATX Festival. And at first it was a little too, I said, I was like, that's too cutesy. We wouldn't have used that. And then he says, make it less cute. And it basically came up with our panel description, which talk about convenience versus not. We spend a lot of time writing panel descriptions and they yep. like aren't super, like we're very protective of them because we want them to be thoughtful and not just like marketing speak. So part of me thinks, that's so helpful and then they uh, and saves time because of all the things and then you just edit it and like panel descriptions are not tv shows like what 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 would i be protecting mm-hmm. whatever wise um i did find out from laura that our merch descriptions were all written by chat gpt she interesting used, she used it to do that something else that is terrible to and write it's, it's also hard because this is where i feel conflicted in the sense that one, we're a small team and writing something like a merch description does not take anything away from anyone. It does not take a paycheck or no. it does not take a job away save from time. someone. It does save time. But then there is the thought of having, may sound bad, but having interns do it as that's part of their learning process. Yeah, yeah. And that's part of how people, you have to learn to write very maybe um, le- even the panel descriptions i yeah. would see as being more valuable for a programming intern to write because yes. then they learn how to describe things in ways that are thoughtful and what the panels are about so that then you know and and it's a big skill set to learn to write something short and to the point mm-hmm. and clear yet but it's fun and engaging here's the other question is like is that just a calculator now like it's when true. people well, are like, you should know basic math. And you're like, why? I have a calculator in my pocket. And I feel like, like people should know basic should, math because your brain needs to practice those sorts yeah. of things. But that's one of the things I've heard people talk about and that they talk about some on this panel is the thing that their writers are afraid of is that it's not that the final script would be written by an AI machine, but that it the first draft mm-hmm. just to get that first draft out. And then they would add the human element to it. But if you don't have new writers learning to write those first drafts, yep. even though they're not going to be good and the showrunner is going to have to rewrite them. And it's still going to be a lot of work to take that process away. A writer will never be able to write an amazing script if they don't know how to write a bad I agree. script. I mean, it's, you have to learn to walk before you run. And it's like every skill set you have is a basis for the one above it. So you can't just go to level 10. Yes. You have to learn level one. It's the idea of school. Like, <laughs> I know. So there are yeah, many yeah. people out there who are never going to use math in their jobs and that's fine. And you have a calculator in your pocket. But, but you should still learn it in third grade yes. is essentially what it is. Is like yes. you don't, that's why they have tests remedial tests that don't allow you to have a calculator in them when you're in school. When you graduate, you can use a calculator. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think we've solved all the world (laughs) problems. No need to listen to the panel. Just kidding. But yes, they talk about a lot of great things on this panel and there's some parts that are scary and some parts that are plain fascinating, but I do appreciate that they do end with messages of hope in uh, this world and that there's really great things coming out of this as well. So I think that that's something to take note of as you go into it. Yeah. I'm excited to listen to it. And uh, (laughs) uh, this is again, presented by Hollywood Health and Society, and it is uh, moderated by Hollywood Health Health and Society's Armine Corian and an amazing panel full of, as you said, actor- writers. We also have Elena Smith for the first time, creator mm. of Dickinson, who we have been trying to get to the festival forever. And she sat on a few things. It is phenomenal. And had a great time. She'll be back. Yes. Yes. So awesome. with that, enjoy. 
nice packed room. I love this. <laughs> Hi, all. Welcome to ATX. And um, I know we've all been looking forward to this festival all year, and we're finally here. So today's panel is called Artificial Intelligence and Us. Thank you for joining us today to hear this conversation. My name is Armine Kuruyan, and I'm the Senior Project Manager at USC's Hollywood Health and Society. We are a nonprofit organization that works directly with the entertainment industry to inform and inspire TV content on health, safety, and security. Our strategy is to help writers and producers craft accurate messages and entertainment to help inform and educate viewers to lead healthier and safer lives. Among the many topics that we deal with, one of the hottest topics of late on everyone's mind is artificial intelligence, or AI. It's no longer a futuristic concept. It's here, and it's changing our lives in many ways for better and for worse. AI has the power to help with healthcare, medicine, education, but it also has the power to cause severe harm with deep fakes, cyber attacks, job loss, and weaponization. So on that happy note, let's get started. I'd like to introduce our panelists today. Um, first, we have Dr. Amelia Javorsky. Come on up. Dr. Javorsky is a physician scientist and the director of multi-stakeholder engagements at the Future of Life Institute. Thank you for being here. Next up, Kevin Bigley. Kevin is an actor and writer known for The Dilemma, Stretch, The Angry Birds Movie, Sirens, and most recently, the science fiction comedy Upload on Amazon. <laughs> Next up, Elena Smith. <laughs> Elena is a creator, showrunner, writer, executive producer, and director. Her credits include My America, The Newsroom, The Affair, and, the sh and she's the creator of the comedy drama series on Apple TV Plus called Dickinson. <laughs> Javier Grigio Markswatch. Javier is the co-executive producer and writer. His credits include the Emmy Awards winning Lost and Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, as well as The Witcher, Cowboy Bebop, and Raising Dion, all on Netflix. Welcome to our amazing panel. <laughs> So when we first started planning this panel, we thought we were going to talk about AI um, on TV as a character in the show. But now things are moving so quickly, we are here to talk about AI doing the storytelling, or AI as the writer of the show. And of course, how this plays into the current writer's strike. Let's start with Amelia. Future of Life is a nonprofit organization that has a very clear mission steering transformative technology towards benefiting life and away from extreme large-scale risks. The purpose is to steer away from existential threat, particularly from advanced AI. So as we've entered a new era where life and intelligence is engineered rather than evolution naturally taking its course, set the stage for us. What do you see as the pros and cons of AI and what are the biggest threats in the next five, 10, or 20 years? Absolutely. 
Thank you, Armine. Um, so at our organization, the Future of Life Institute, we see both the tremendous upside that the development of AI could offer humanity, as well as the tremendous downside if we develop this technology irresponsibly. And so over the years, we've engaged in sort of both sides of that coin. On the risk side, we've talked a lot about the risks of weaponization. That's been an area that our organization has been particularly active in, um, in integrating AI into weapon systems and the types of risks that that could pose to society and humanity and security, but also the risks of developing increasingly powerful AI um, that may even become smarter than us, right? And, and what does it mean to develop a technology like that? Um, and the sort of downsides that you mentioned in your opening arguments of the fact that of misinformation, of job loss, of not even being really able to understand like what is real and what is fake, and, and what does that mean of our ability to make sense of society and communicate with one another. On the flip side, we also see tremendous positive potential for AI in health and medicine and climate change. Um, and actually with Hollywood Health and Society that we had done a screenwriting competition of imagining positive futures with AI. And I think that is a critical piece of the puzzle because we can't just have technology given to us without thinking about how we would like to use it. And it's in imagining the ways that we want to use technology, the ways we want it to make our lives better, enhance our ability to tell stories, not replace it, right? Um, that helps us reverse engineer what are the decisions we need to make today. And so that's kind of the, the nexus. There's a tremendous upside, tremendous downside, and we need to be sure that we're being responsible and also thinking towards visions with the technology that we, we want to steer towards. Absolutely, thank you. Um, as we know, one of the biggest fears is how quickly things are evolving and moving. And um, most of you may have seen that in March, a letter was put out, an open letter calling for a six-month pause on the development of the largest AI model, citing concerns about the out-of-control race to develop and deploy this technology. Um, your organization headed this letter, and it garnered over 1,000 signatures, uh, one of the... Um, names included Mr. Elon Musk. So what resulted from that letter and what interventions are proposed to slow down or kind of um, keep in control the development of AI? Absolutely, so um, part of the reason we sort of had a call for a pause and then with that we also put out a document called policy making in the pause is this idea of things are moving so quickly. As you said in the framing, like six months ago when we thought about this panel, it was mainly going to be about AI and storytelling around AI. And almost overnight, it's sort of come into the real world and infecting our lives. And this is happening across every industry and aspect of society. And so we need to take a moment to figure out what are the guardrails for this technology? 
How do we make it sure that this is done safely? How do we make sure this is done ethically? How do we start to put in the policies and procedures in place so we're actually using the technology in a way that we want to use it in society that benefits us in as both collectively us here living in the United States, but also all over the world. Um, and so for us, that was why you know, we call for the six month pause or a moment to actually give us the breathing room to start to put in the policies and procedures and have collective conversations around how do we want to use this technology. Thank you. Kevin, Upload is streaming two seasons on Amazon right now and the third season is in the works. Um, it's been getting great reviews, so let's give it up for Upload. <laughs> The premise is that humans can upload themselves into a virtual afterlife to a beautiful resort called Lakeview. What did you think when you first heard about this role and what attracted you to Luke's character? Um, well, uh, kind of the tone of the show. I mean, Greg Daniels is our showrunner. Um, he kind of has that, the, his idea of the future, which is kind of the present currently. Um, at the time, it was futuristic becoming increasingly uh, a lot of the things that he's put in there in the pilot have actually kind of come true with things like crashing self cars and vape lung uh, sadly but uh, there's a text thread always when I, I send him an article where I'd be like man another one you know like uh, but yeah I think just the tone that it's neither I asked him when we were doing the pilot I was like is this a utopia or a dystopia and he was like it's just kind of reality and which is a mix of both right um I think his overall view, um, sadly, he couldn't be here, so then he was like, you go do it. Uh, <laughs> so I'm here um, talking for him. But, you know, there's this idea that uh, we kind of talk about, you know, the, as like a premise for all the writing is that, um, like, magic is technology that we don't understand, that famous saying. But with Upload, it's kind of like this opinion that, it's like magic if it were if it were Hogwarts, but it were run by perverts. Like it's just always going to be corrupted or taken by terrible people and done you know weird things with. Uh, we have a, a, a piece of technology in the show that was created, a suit, so that once you're uploaded, a, a grandparent's uploaded, uh, you know they can feel what it's like to be hugged by their grand their you know grandparent but then it's used for the porn industry. So, you know, just kind of that stuff. It's just kind of always kind of repurposed in a grotesque and uh, capitalist and terrible way. It's very much about, you know, the cutting of red tape and all this stuff of that, uh, that if you allow, uh, and we're seeing it now, like capitalism to take control, it's just going to, they're, gonna, they're going to do with this what they will. I mean, uh, automation was something that was, that's always been kind of put into sci-fi and we had certainly had a lot of it, but now you're seeing, um, I think Greg kind of always feels that technology is introduced as a, uh, in interesting ways as some, some kind of a parlor trick. And we're seeing that with a lot of like AI songs and even with like Wendy's and stuff. I'm like, hey, we're going full automation. It's kind of treated as like, isn't that neat? But then the ramifications of it, it's kind of, Corporations kind of use that that headline as you know it's kind of a sneaky thing because you go oh wow that's kind of cool and then you realize oh uh, 
someone who, I mean, the, the vast majority of youth are taking, used to hold those positions of working a drive through and they kind of learned how, what it was like to show up work on time and open a bank account and what it was like to write a check and all that stuff. You've eliminated tens of thousands of jobs and, uh, you know, the introductory to the workplace, um, you know, but yeah, I don't know, got off on tangent. <laughs> Thank you. You know, they say people, what well, people see in science fiction, they try to want to make it in real life. So that's a little scary concerning those suits. <laughs> uh, from your experience, can you describe how AI plays a role in your acting? Um, do you use a green screen to, um, um, you know, have the special effects done in post-production? Like, how does it all work in your world? We had, during COVID, because uh, we shot in January of 2021 for season two, we didn't Things, you know, there was no vaccine, especially we shoot in Vancouver and it was slow getting there. So we shot the whole season without a vaccine. So there were a couple actors we couldn't get that were in the first season. So we had to do a deep fake on one of them and then generate some, uh, a, a thing of lines. And I mean, every season I have to walk in, uh, we all do, walk into a globe of cameras and take pictures uh, you know, where you're stretching your face or whatever. It's just kind of in your contract. It's deeply unsettling. Uh, you know, something that, like, you know, I think Donald Glover said this about Solo when he did that, when uh, he was like, they, they did the same thing. And, you, you know, and if, it, like, when he dies, they'll just go, hey, let's do another movie with Donald. Let's just cue him up, put him up there. You know, like, you can, you can do that. They have access to it. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, we have a lot of green screen, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, uh, you know, humans are generating it for now. <laughs> Thank you. Elena, uh, you recently wrote an op-ed in, in Vanity Fair uh, titled, The AI Apocalypse is Coming for Hollywood, But Don't Robots Rule Us Already? Uh, you note that right now, machines are learning to generate full-length screenplays. They're making up dazzling sets. They're doing deepfake 3D rotatable stand-ins for your favorite actors, all without paying a single fee or residual. You say, oh, let's just call it a wrap. Let's step aside and just let the robots take over. But, um, of course, there's a certain word that's missing in this equation. The word is intimacy. So tell us about the intimacy factor. Um yeah, I, it's so also so weird. I wrote this essay for Vanity Fair like three months ago, and it and and it was going to be in the print issue. Remember magazines like print media, and I just kept waiting and waiting and like white knuckling it for this because I was like, the discourse is moving. We need to get this thing out. And by the time it came out, I was like, yeah, that's been said. But um, you know, which it's just so crazy how fast this conversation is moving. But um, but I, I do it's sort of two parts to, I guess, my answer to this. One, one is just that I do encourage all of us to at least entertain the possibility that when we think about this horrific future we might all be facing with AI, we might really just be talking about the horrific present that we already live in. Um, and, you know, I, I read this great line in some... Substack or something that was like, you know, is the is the future that you fear like the hell that you already live in? Um, and I I think that, you know, 
things are going to get weird, but like things already are weird. And we, I, I, my only hope, and this does go into the question about intimacy and sort of what I'm saying in my piece is it, my only hope about this AI conversation and experience that we all seem destined to have together is that it might be like a sort of oil and water situation for our humanity. Because if there's one thing it really does, it shines a direct light on the parts of us that are not replaceable by machines and robots and algorithms and data streams and surveillance and clicks and likes and all that, you know, like I, 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 I think we are at a kind of interesting inflection point with social media and streaming and like the collapse of all media onto the internet where we might all be a little bit sick of it and maybe we're all ready to like go outside and connect with our neighbors or go to a bar or dance or do, you know, physical things. And I think that um, my take on this fear Look, it, it, is, it is going to, there's no question that the studios right now are trying to figure out if they can punch buttons and print out screenplays. First of all, they all have always wished that they could do that. But like, <laughs> you know, maybe they can in certain instances. Maybe you can make a James Bond movie or a Marvel movie. I mean, you know, I don't know. But there are, there the, there are go there's going to be a categorical distinction between what can be made by robots and what cannot. And I guess I feel like it's on all of us, you know, as creators and audience and community to seek out what is real. And I don't want to say that, like, you know, what is real can't involve any robots. I'm not, I'm not saying that like we have to become shakers and make like our artisanal hand made, you know, I started in theater and like, I don't want to go back to theater because, like, you know, like I, I'm fine with like cameras. I'm fine with Googling stuff, you know, like it's all good, but it's just tools. And, and what is go, what, what is the point of art? What is the point of stories? It is that I, a human, wanted to say something to you, another human. I just like have to have faith in that because I don't think that that can be, I don't think, it doesn't make any sense to me. I, I work too hard at writing for it to make any sense that you could just like hit print and you're, and you're gonna feel the same thing. I don't believe it, so I don't know. That's, yeah. Thank you. So as we know, uh, as you said, bias is a huge problem with AI. It just kind of copies and repeats past prejudices that it's learned from, that it already has in its history bank. So Dickinson is a show that's very original, very forward thinking, literally the opposite of what we might expect from an AI-generated story. What would you say to the argument that AI is only a threat to unoriginal writers, if anything? It will force writers to be more creative and more forward thinking. Well, I guess, so it's interesting because the, the, it, there, there, there's, a, there's a different way of, of framing it as well, which is that Dickinson, which I don't know how many of you guys have seen Dickinson, but it's, you know, very, oh, yay. Okay, it's very much, um, 
an act of curated remixing because I took a, 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 da a data, a body of data, which was like Emily Dickinson's biography, Emily Dickinson's poems, historical facts about the 19th century, the way people talked and spoke and acted in the 19th century. And then I like remixed that with stuff about where we are today or maybe yesterday um, of, of like, you know, social media and, and, and fame and celebrity and all this type of stuff, right? Um, and the idea that I was trying to do was to make this sort of like uncanny blur between the past and the present that would show us ultimately the ways that like 19th century cultural codes still rule our lives to such an extent. Now, it's totally possible that I could have used an AI helper. I could have been like, AI, go find me every kind of like sentence written by Nathaniel Hawthorne and then like alphabetize them and maybe, you know, and, 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 and that might've been cool. But the point is that like there was a human at the center making choices about what to put in and what to leave out. And the only way I was able to do that, it was, it was literally context. It was context. It was like the, 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 I was establishing the rules of a certain game and then inviting my audience to play the game and, and my actors and everyone who made the show, you know? Um, so in a way, like, I, again, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm laying all that out to say that, like, there's never been anything original other than the arrangement of it and, and the composition. And, like, that's what, there's no way robots are going to be able to do that. Like, it doesn't make any sense, you know? So, um, but that's just, <laughs> that's, that's just art. There's a lot of other parts of society that I don't, I don't have any kind of confident statement about how we're going to, you know, <laughs> school terrifies me, honestly. I mean, what about, please, please don't let AI start teaching our kids, please. Like, that's not going to teach them how to be human, you know? Like, yeah. Thank you. Um, Javier, the projects you've worked on from Lost to the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance show massive amounts of creativity and out-of-the-box thinking. Um, so let's say writers have managed to secure their place as the arbiters of storytelling. Is there any role you can envision for AI that would be beneficial for writers? Absolutely. Um, look, we, we can be afraid of this technology or we can embrace it. The fact of the matter is it's moving at the speed of capitalism. It's a faster speed that, like, the speed of light has nothing on the speed of capitalism. Um, it's out there, and you can't unring the bell. And every time that I try to make the arguments for myself, and I'm not a particularly hopeless or nihilistic person, but every time I think, recently I was diagnosed with ADHD, and my psychiatrist said, I could medicate you, but what you will gain in focus, you will lose in associative creativity. So I like to think of my, oh my God, that's, that's, my, that's what makes me a human being. I have associative creativity. And if, you know, but here's the thing. That's what the AI is doing. It's compiling things and, and, and it's putting them together in ways that may seem uncanny and all of that. So the fact of the matter is AI is going to write, okay? Um, and, and I don't like the implication that, you know, oh, well, an AI can write Fast and the Furious but not Succession. AIs will write Succession. Succession is a soap opera that is filtered through Patty Chayefsky and King Lear. So don't tell me that it can't write. It will, you know? And by the way, uh, uh, meaning no disrespect, the Marvel movies are awesome and they're great acts of human creativity. Um, and they give me great pleasure. And I don't think a computer is gonna be able to write that for the same reason that you said though, which is that somebody has to be making choices. 
we need to, as artists, take the technology and make those choices ourselves. And we need to teach people how to use the technology to enable us to make better choices, not to make choices for us, okay? Um, anything that anything that gets made, anything that gets created, as, as, as you said, is very much about somebody put a body of things together and then combined it, you know? AI can help us find sources of information we didn't know existed. AI can, you know, do all of these things. It cannot, it, it is only going to be as good as who is feeding it what, okay? So if you have studio executives feeding it what they want, you're gonna get a certain thing. If you've got, you know, uh, uh, David Simon feeding an AI information and telling it, you know, give me information about this, that, and the other thing, you're gonna get a very different thing. So the role of the thinker and the role of the person who, who comes up with things that are original and novel is not going to go away in our society. Okay, there is absolutely going to be AI generated entertainment all over the place. And we just have to live with that right now because as you said, they have a plan. If they're talking about only having meetings now, that means they're having meetings all the time. They know what they're gonna do with it. Um, we need to be at the lead of that. We need to basically grab those tools and say, hey, look, here's what I can do with it. Here's what, I instead of the studios telling us, here's what we think you should be doing and here's a script that, here's a shitty script that we came up with an AI, can you rewrite it? Which is all of our, our immediate nightmare scenario is not robots are gonna take over our jobs. Our immediate nightmare scenario is somebody's gonna get an AI to write a crappy script and then they're gonna make me rewrite it into a good script for less money, you know? So why, do, why, why can't we be the ones teaching the AIs how to, how to put together the stuff that we need to make better art? It can be a huge creativity multiplier for all of us. We just have to not be afraid of it. And the less afraid of it we are of it and the less we, we mystify it, the more we will be able to actually look at this technology objectively and say, here's where the threats are, you know? Um, I don't, a lot of the job that I, that, that I believe that I do, you know, I, I, is what I call trope Tetris, okay? Um, I go into a writer's room and I've been doing this for 30 years and I've worked on a bunch of genre shows, so I know genre left and right. So if I go into a room and the, the showrunner says, I want to get from point A to point Z, how do we get there? My job is to like, deep blue the chess computer say, okay, here's the five ways that dramatically this can happen based on my knowledge of storytelling globally. AI can increase that incredibly, right? But it still has to be asked the question of what is it that we're trying to get out of this emotionally and what is it that we're trying to convey to the audience? And it's just, there's a great line in, in a Marvel film, in fact, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, where uh, the high uh, evolutionary says, it can only think thoughts that have already been thought. So our job is to, if we're gonna coexist with this technology and we're going to rule this technology is to put newer thoughts into it continually. And it will take those thoughts and it'll do what television does constantly, which is it takes original stuff and regurgitates it into all sorts of other stuff. It's not gonna do anything that a bunch of other writers rooms aren't doing, you know? So our job is what, after 30 years of writing, of writing uh, uh, genre stuff, people say, oh, well, uh, did you watch this series or that series? And I'm like, no, you know, I'm not watching as much genre stuff anymore. And they're like, why not? And I'm like, I feel like I have to go see really obscure documentaries about like stuff that has nothing to do with anything so that I can go learn about new things that I can then bring into genre. And that's gonna be our relationship to AI as well. Absolutely, thank you. So given all this, we know that there's a writer strike happening right now. Um, the ne negotiations from the last strike <laughs> um, didn't foresee the consequences of all of this. So that is why we're part of, that's why we're in the current strike. So as we move forward, uh, what negotiations would you um, say should be taking place uh, to protect Hollywood creatives? What would you advise? They have made thinking machines. 
Okay, they literally have a machine that can fly a drone, figure out who the terrorist is, and put the Hellfire missile in the right place. And it's that hard to come up with an algorithm that tells me how many sources the AI looked at to compose this photo of a boob that I asked it to make, really? <laughs> like, literally, the algorithm can spit out 20 pages saying, here are the 10,000 boobs that we looked at on the internet to give you this boob that you just asked, right? I'm sorry about it. It's vulgar. I apologize. But you know what I mean. Plus, everything's driven by pornography anyway, right? Everybody, like, literally all new technology is driven by pornography and uh, pornography. Um, I hope none of you invested in fax porn, by the way. That didn't go very well, but... Um, no, look, I think ultimately, um, why isn't there a piece of software that can spit out a 10-page printout that tells me everything that this computer looked at and creates a residual structure around that? We're all capitalists, right? I mean, look, I'm... We all act as capitalists. I'd rather be a communist if, com if that could actually exist. It doesn't, clearly. Um, but so if the, if the whole thing is how do we monetize it, how do we keep track of credit and who did what, surely that is a lesser technological challenge than creating a machine that can think. So why have they not done that? Who's developing that technology? Why can't the studios put money into developing a technology like that that will actually create a residuals tracking that will actually be able to pay the people whose work is being used to create this stuff? Great point. Anyone else have an opinion on that? I think it comes down to a fundamental problem that we see across different applications of AI and how these systems are structured, which is this idea of like the black box problem, which is the fact that like we have just optimized these machines to be more powerful without actually investing a substantial amount of time and resources and effort in actually understanding how they work. And so, you know, that was part of what our organization has been advocating for is like, we need to understand how to interpret how these machines make decisions and recommendations, explain where these ideas that it's generating are coming from, what content was used as part of that within this set of training data, what training data sets are there, right? Um, and so this is something we're seeing across, whether it be in, in terms of writing, whether it be in terms of the military and the drone, right? How are they training that? How is that system making those decisions? Um, but that isn't an incentivized commercially attribute to have into the systems, right? In you, the commercial incentive is to make these systems more powerful, and the race is to make them more powerful. It's not to engineer wisdom into them and for us to understand how they work. And so I think it's upon all of us to collectively demand that understanding of how these systems work if we want them to be safe and if we want them to be able to work with us in a collaborative way and still attribute, in this case, credit where credit is due. Can I add something? Look, I, I'm not an AI scientist, so I don't know, but I, I, I believe there's a bit of a mis- a uh, misnomer in the idea that these are thinking machines and that you could ask it a question like, where did you get that data that you used to construct that image? And that it would tell you, quote unquote, the truth. Because that's the thing. These AI machines, they don't tell you facts. They kind of just give you vibes. Like they're just, they're, 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 they're mimic machines. It, basically, if you ask that question, the AI would feel satisfied giving you an answer that felt like the truth. We should really call them bullshit machines because that is all they are. Like they imitate, they, they, got, they got these large language models to the point where 
it's like, or, or Dolly, you know, where it's like, show me a cat. They finally fed it enough data that it can show you something that like basically looks like a cat. But like, if you look closely, it's got like a tooth growing out of its forehead and like, you know, like a weird missing paw. And that's because it's, it's literally just pinging back and forth, being like, does that look like a cat? Does that look like a cat? Everything I said was a cat. But it doesn't know what a cat is. Like, it's just, it's very, it's hard because we have this misperception because we use language to have conversations and to communicate facts. So we think we're talking to a being that is also using language in that way, but we're not. We're talking to a set of computers that has been designed to sort of reject what will make it seem like it doesn't know what it's talking about. But so just for example, I mean, there was just a case where a lawyer used AI to deliver a a brief and it cited 16 cases that don't exist. And the lawyer didn't catch it. I mean, it's all fucking bullshit. It's all plagiarism and bullshit. And like, that's the other thing. Like, we're going to all have to get so much better at knowing how to ask questions about where where did this information where did you get this information what you know i think actually sadly like this all might blow up in silicon valley's face because the internet is going to become unusable it's going to be a absolute avalanche of garbage which it already practically is but it but it <laughs> but it's like what happens when every we're already there every single did anyone see that picture of the pope wearing a puffer jacket okay, that's not real. Like, nothing's real. You can't trust a single picture you see online. And you can't trust a fact. And you don't know who's talking to you. If somebody says, may I help you? What is that? Is that a person? I don't know. You know, like, I, I just think we're, we, we aren't, I know people, th- I know people always think humans are dumb, but like, you know, like, we're not all, like, people will learn quickly, I think. And we have to like, it's just not going to be useful. What are the use cases of this, right? Like, we've had a really fun time for the past decade, like, all being online with everybody all the time and just being like, oh, that's what the New York Times says about that, and that's what this says about that. And, you know, and it's like, I just don't think those spaces are going to exist in, like, within five, three to five years. I think it's, it's not. It's too polluted, you know? I want to say something. Um, awesome. Thank you. I think it's all coming down to to value, really, because and it and it's up to like just a collective society to make a choice on what we value. The thing is, is like what I think what everyone's kind of saying, and everyone knows probably in this room is it's not that good yet, and really, really, it's probably like with with any kind of writing or creation, what makes it novel is the element of surprise, comedy and horror specifically, and it can't surprise. Now, it can mimic for sure, but really, and it, like, what, how many Redbox movies are there out there that are generally fucking surprising? I mean, like, you know, that you can do that, and you can make a living off of it, and that's also a scary thing, right? Like, it can, right now, generate a screenplay that could, that could go into production, it would suck, but they could, a studio could put it out there and, and as like an AI generated movie and, if it, and it would make its money back pretty quickly, you know? I mean, you telling me it can't write cocaine bear? Like it, it 
and it would be very it would be successful initially because it's not. I disagree. Novel. I loved cocaine. I liked cocaine bear. <laughs> Like, but like, was there anything? In, uh, there was nothing with cocaine bear. Where I was like, wait a minute. Like it was, you know, I had a good time. But that's what I'm saying is that it can do this entry level stuff. Another thing with mimicry is that that is <laughs> there's an there's an initial part of a process of learning to get good that involves mimicry. Yep. And. You have to, with a comedian, a comedian is going to adopt another voice. A, a writer will adopt another voice who they wish to sound like. And if we're talking about this whole notion that, well, it's going to weed out a lot of hacks, you have to be a hack for a little while because you have to learn. And if we're talking about people who are generating the same jokes and then they learn that that's hack material, it's, a, it's an integral process of getting there. And you're going to, like talking about Wendy's weeding out the workforce, if you're doing that, you're going to lose a lot of writers. You have to be in a room and suck for a little bit. It, you know, you know it's, it's also, there's a question of intent, I think, is, is for me what it comes down to. You know, the, the modern art, you know, people look at a Cy Twombly and they say, oh, my kid could have done that, right? That's the cliche of modern art, right? And, of course, the answer is, but he hasn't, and they didn't. There's, there's a certain amount of thought that has to go into the conception of something in order to make it valuable, you know, and a certain amount of context and a certain amount of... So, you know, you can talk about, um, can an AI generate a bunch of fake Basquiat's? You know, of course it can. I mean, it will totally do that and you probably put them on your wall or what have you. But I think there's, there's some sense of... We talk about, can an AI write a show as good as Succession? Let me ask another question. Can an AI make a movie as bad as Plan 9 from Outer Space? Okay. <laughs> Because one of, the th one of the things you see in movie trailers, and I was like, from visionary director Zack Snyder. Well, guess what? Visionary is not necessarily a compliment. <laughs> Ed Wood was a visionary. I mean, his vision sucked, but he's a visionary. And the reason why we love Plan 9 from Outer Space is because in the awfulness and the lack of craft and the lack of artistic ability, there is a essential humanity. You are literally watching a person who's gifts are completely not up to the task of articulating the thing <laughs> that they have in their soul. And that's part of art, weirdly, you know? Um, it, it just, just as something great is part of art. And that sense of, and this is where I really believe there will be a space for us to coexist with these machines because they are generative. They can create, they can prototype, they can do things that if I sat down and tried to create, try to make a picture of something, I, I, it would be limited by everything. I would have this tool that can create anything but I still have to be the one having the moment where I think, like Cy Twombly, how do these pencil scratches that I'm going to do on this piece of canvas reflect my knowledge of ancient Greek mythology? You know, and how can I create a, a, a consistent set of, set of works of art that are really going to be about my thoughts on all of these things about society, even if somebody who doesn't know what they're doing is going to, doesn't know what I went through is going to look at it and say, maybe, oh, my kid could have done that. You know? If you know where the art is coming from, if you have an understanding of its context and its intent, or just even when you look at it, it's something like Plan 9 or, or, or something great or Lars von Trier movie or whatever, you're still seeing that cry of the soul. That's what the machines can help us make better. And that's where we should be focusing our energy, in my opinion. Thank you. I think I'm getting the sign to move on to Q&A. So are there any um, questions from the audience? Oh, I the sign to move on. What's that about? <laughs> <laughs> I know you addressed a little bit about the need for guardrails uh, and regulation and that 
are none that exist, and and really they're probably going to need to exist internationally like they are for nuclear weapons control. But I, I'm wondering if you could address one that I think maybe does exist that the studios are currently have their attorneys trying to figure out, which is copyright. Right now, an AI cannot have copyrighted work. Um, to have copyright, you have to be a human. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that in terms of how long maybe that can kind of be a dam that holds things back, but also what could break it. And just to, just to be clear, an AI, these training sets include a hell of a lot of copyrighted work. That has not been sorted out yet. So I just want to be clear because AI is all based on theft and the theft has occurred. And the question is like, are we going to let the theft, you know, become a taken for granted or are we going to, so there's like sort of two parts, right? Like, You know, it, um, again, th this may be my, my knowledge sort of uh, being way less than my... Now, when I said that there's, there should be a, a mechanism by which to track the sources that the AI is using to create its mimicry, like, I'm not talking about interrogating the actual program. I'm talking about building satellite programs that monitor them. Um, I mean, is that is that so out of the realm of, of possibility? Because, Paul, I think in, in terms of breaking... What's going to take, take break copyright... Ron DeSantis gets in the White House and says he doesn't want copyright anymore. A unitary executive with enough power can, you know, or, or a supreme, I mean, it's science fiction, but like imagine a Supreme Court loaded with ideologues who are pro-business. <laughs> Couldn't happen because we know they're all very good people. Um, they would never take graft from a billionaire. But what I'm trying to say is copyright's a word and that word's going to go, I mean, that word can go away in a stroke of a pen, you know? I think that, that for me, the, 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 the guardrails are ultimately going to be ones that are t technological and that they are put in by people, uh, you know, based on, on, on politics, but that are going to come in because the technology is able to do that kind of tracking, I think. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is the genesis of why we were talking about a pause and a need to have a conversation about this, because we need more voices in the room about what we should be doing to regulate this technology and how we want to use it. And we should be ideating on exactly as we are on this panel of like, what are the ideas of how we can help this augment our work and not replace it? What are the ideas of how we could track this technology in a way that we're all comfortable with? And, you know, with the pace that this is moving and has moved and continues to move, to your point of like, oh, that was science fiction two months ago and now it's reality. Um, we're continuing on that path. The companies are not slowing down and accelerating the development of this technology. Um, and in, in terms of the consequences that has for the workforce, for our security, for our collective sort of existence is, is a species or dire. And that's why we need to be open, taking a pause and opening up the conversation and getting diverse input of like, what are the ideas of what we should be doing? And then let's actually start doing them. I mean, I guess it's also that a lot of the companies we're talking about are the biggest companies in the world that are, you know, possibly monopoly, oligopoly. Like, there's things that need to be done that's about breaking up these giant corporations so they don't have so much power, you know? Like, you, you don't need to talk about the AI. You can talk about why does Google get to decide you know, what, what it regulates and what it doesn't, or whatever, you know, like, I mean, what, 
Another thing I just want to share that, that I feel I feel like a number of people have made this, this is me spitting out something from a data set uncredited because I don't know where, where it came from. But like people keep making this brilliant point that like the AI was supposed to come and do all the boring jobs so that we could all make art and have and have creativity and fun. But now for some reason the AI is doing all the art and the creativity and like we're just gonna be doing all the boring jobs. So I don't know. Like I, I guess it's just like like what kind of world do we want to live in? It remains an open question with this technology or without it. And the more and more that people are crushed down into lives that don't feel, you know, joyful, like it's, it's, it's going, it's not, there, there's going to be all these types of questions. And I do think we think like, like art and writing and independent thought are things that people value. So yeah, back to values, like seems like it really, it's like a blacklight on all these value systems. A collective opinion will be very important and slowing it down to, for us to gather that opinion will be imperative. I think too that when something happens technologically, it doesn't always mean that it's necessarily the most permanent thing. Uh, for instance, where are Kindle sales at? You know, it seems like Gen Z has kind of agreed that a physical book is important to them. You can, you know, also, I'll throw this out here as like just maybe some tentative optimism, but like, how's that Tupac hologram doing? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, when that happened, everyone just went, well, okay, Elvis, and then they're gonna do the Beatles and all this stuff. And then there was the Super Bowl in Minneapolis, and Prince had just died, and Justin Timberlake was the leak that he was gonna use that. And everyone said, no. <laughs> No, you will not. <laughs> and well, what's, what's interesting down. about, if, if I may, what's interesting about the ABBA thing is that, yes, but do you know who's controlling the, it's Bjorn and Benny and, and Agatha and, 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 and Annie Fried. I mean, they're actually modeled as adults. They program the concert. It's their art. I mean, weirdly, the ABBA hologram is actually ABBA doing an ABBA show that they could never have done, which that's the good version of the Tupac hologram. You know, it's like, it's like there's, the original artist is still animating it and, it, and it's still their their cry of the soul, such as Dancing Queen is, and I believe that truly. <laughs> I do, I do. Fact. No, fact. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's, so, again, what's the use? Is it a bunch of suits going, hey, we can bring back Tupac, put him in the Super Bowl and make a million dollars? Or is it Bjorn and Benny saying, God, we are 152 years old, we cannot get up there in those karate outfits and do that show, <laughs> right? But, but we can create this based on all of the stuff we've done and, and give it our, our, are, are premature. I also heard that James Earl Jones like sold his voice to be used as Darth Vader and like that this is great because he was originally like totally ripped off for the Darth Vader role and now he'll finally, you know, cash in on that. And also like, that's great. Like Darth Vader's voice should be immortal. Like, <laughs> you know, so. Uh, question here. Uh, you know, having to please uh, the financial side of the industry, I, I see you not as other uh, programs, but as you as being able to see, hey, this is dangerous. So, so what can you do instead of relying on somebody else to say, we need to stop this thing from taking over our lives? Well, the guild is striking right now. So one of the issues on the table is AI. So the union is fighting against it. And I think several political leaders have kind of called out the guild, like, or at least not called out, but like 
shine a light on the guild and what's happening right now as being kind of symbolic for something that, like, we're talking about a collective opinion about value. Um, so, yeah, we're, I think everybody who's part of the union or backs that decision has already made their choice very clear. So, And it seems to me that the, the commonality between what's going on with the labor, with, with, with the labor unions right now um, is that basically what's happening to us is a bundling, unbundling, and changing in the structure of our labor so that we can be paid the least amount of money for the most amount of services. It's basically the same thing that's happening to you with Netflix or with some streaming where they're like, well, if you can have this tier, you have this. If you have this tier, you have that. If you want to put luggage in the overhead, you have to pay more. You know, That's how we're getting paid now. You know, And that is a knock-on effect of tech industry thinking about how to monetize everything. It's also uh, about late capitalism thinking about everything needs to be monetized. Okay. Um, Labor, in terms of what's happening in, in Hollywood right now, but I think it's going to happen a lot more across the country, is that we're all looking at this and saying we're not, we are not AIs. We're not things that you can pay us by the moment, by the service, by the thing or whatever. And I think ultimately that is the, the, the biggest thing that's going to change this is going to be human action that isn't going to be glamorous. It's not going to be interesting. It's going to be a bunch of champs outside with signs saying don't do this to us. It's going to be stopping the machine and saying, hey, um, machine, we know that you're in a real hurry to unbundle all the services and, and, and monetize everything, but there are people who are going to be affected by these decisions. And you need to stop and think about how those, since we do live in a capitalist society and we all need to make money in order to survive, how is everybody going to get paid what they deserve? You know? Yeah. And I would just say this is happening across every sector of the economy, right? Like we're here today discussing this in the terms of writing and content creation. But if you talk as software engineers, right? Like these systems now can write their own code. And so all of a sudden they're not coding anymore. They're just putting in an input of what kind of program they want. And they're looking at staring down into this vacuum of, our industry as programmers is going to be removed, right? Which is so counterintuitive when we think about talking about something like AI. You would say, oh yeah, that's going to benefit the software engineers. But in fact, they're, you know, they're very concerned about the effect that this will have on, on their workforce. And so I think this is why this is an issue that affects us all. And if we look at the most recent public polling on AI, I mean, people feel very strongly that something needs to be done about this, that we need to slow down, that we need to think through these um, considerations and put up guardrails. And it's pretty bipartisan when you look at that polling. This is something that isn't, you know, across particular political lines or sector lines. This is something that's going to affect all of us collectively, which is why all of us need to be part of that conversation. I mean, it. I have a question for Amelia just on that, like, I mean, because I've heard some thoughts that pretty quickly we could be in a direction where AI has replaced so many jobs across the whole economy that there's really no choice but to institute, you know, a universal basic income because, and, and then, and then like, sorry, but that's not capitalism anymore. Like, and I'm not saying I want that society either, but it's just saying that, that once you, I mean, is, do you see that as a real possibility? Yeah, I mean, there are people that are actively thinking about sort of like a windfall trust or clause, or what does it mean if there is a single company that co develops a technology that essentially can do most of the economy? How do we distribute those benefits and make sure that, you know, 
this technology that's supposed to be <laughs> helping all of us live better lives, live more meaningful lives, do what we value and find purpose, um, that we can still all, all do that. And so that is a conversation that is starting to happen and needs to happen on quite an accelerated time scale given how quickly this technology is moving. We should also start writing fewer dystopian science fiction TV yes. shows. <laughs> Because here's the thing, and, and maybe fear, like, like there's such a huge body of work about like computers killing us. And like, so what computers are doing is going and looking at everything that's been published for ideas. So we maybe should be writing about computers uh, raising bunnies. Right, right. Rainbows and kitties. <laughs> so thing. actually, we um, hosted a competition of this at the Future of Life Institute, which was a world-building competition. And we sort of put out the call to people over the world to say, like, it's 2050, we have strong AI, it went well, and it's a world that you want to live in. Tell us about that world. What's happening in that world? What does a day in the life look like of people living in that world? And, like, show us a piece of creative content that, like, speaks to what that world looks like. And those exercises are so profoundly powerful in both illuminating where we want to go and recognizing like this sort of dystopian world is not inevitable. Like we can still make decisions today that can steer us to vastly more positive futures with this technology and imagining what those futures look like is the first step because then you look at that future and say, all right, let's reverse engineer. What do we have to do today if that's where we want to go? But if we don't have a North Star of examples of places we want to go with this technology, then the darker narrative wins out. You guys have homework, all of you. <laughs> I think there's a question in the back here. So earlier it was uh, mentioned that part of the problem uh, that's created the strike at the moment is the WGA didn't see this coming last time there were negotiations. Um, well, I couldn't help thinking that we're facing the 61st anniversary of Frank Herbert coming up with the Butlerian Jihad, which was his idea in Dune where he said, AIs are too dangerous. So we've known these problems for years. And I think this really is, is probably a, a big question for Amelia. Why are we in a position now where industries like my industry, journalism, like film in this film industry, like TV, like gaming, like coding, we're now on defense uh, against this uh, rather than having got ahead of the problem? And I'll just say, anybody here who's ever had a press release sent out, I will tell you now, statistically speaking, your press release in the last five years has had some proto version of ChatGPT write that for you. A lot of those entry-level PR jobs are already gone. And it frustrates me that we're in this position now where people are going like, oh, this is suddenly happening. Like, no, this has been happening for years and years and years. Why do you think we're in this position where people still don't take this seriously enough like it's a new problem rather than something that's been going for a decade plus, arguably 50 years? Yeah, I would say twofold to that. Um, first is I had a previous career in public health and we're very bad at prevention um, as a society. <laughs> so human history is littered with examples of things we see coming that we haven't, you know, as a society done something about. 
But I would also say the pace of this is very different. The story of AI as a technology has been categorized by these sort of spring winter cycles where there's hype that there's going to be a major breakthrough and it's going to be delivered on and then that isn't delivered. And so if you start to look at the time between milestones in AI and these getting fundamentally new systems that can do new things, it's been getting faster and faster. But at the beginning of the technology, it was, you know, 70 years between when, you know, some of the early systems went on to some of the, you know, things that would now be the prototypes of machine learning systems that we have today. And so I, I think that both we're not good at prevention and the pace of, of development has started to, when you start plotting those milestones, looks pretty exponential. And just as a human society, exponentials are something we have a really hard time dealing with. F. Scott Fitzgerald put it best when somebody asked, how did you go bankrupt? And, and the answer was, well, really slowly at first and then all of a sudden. <laughs> and two, I think we all know that the oracle of time, i.e. the spice mutated final incarnation of Norma Senva, is going to basically subsume Omnius and blast it back into space. So Frank Butler came up with a solution, or his son did anyway. Okay, well, let's wrap up on a positive note. Um, <laughs> the oracle of time saving us from the, from the thinking machines is a very positive note. Um, we're, we're sadly out of time. They say um, time flies when you're talking robots, right? But let's go down the line and maybe we can end on a positive, um, hopeful um, note about AI and going forward in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we've talked a lot today about the power of creatives and artists getting affected by this technology today. But I would also say like the hope of getting this right is also in the hands of creatives and artists because it is precisely that imagining of where we want to go is the homework that we need to do as a society to start to steer this in a positive direction. So I'm very encouraged um, that we have so many great minds that can think on that. Uh, I think a lot of like the stuff that we've seen kind of come out, like going back to this parlor trick idea, like for instance, they're layering vocals. They can kind of, cause music is a really great example because it is so mathematical, um, at least from a technical standpoint and that they can kind of digitize a voice and they can lay it over. I think you've seen it interesting. I think most interestingly to me is Kurt Cobain. Uh, they did this lost, I don't know if anybody saw it, it was a few years ago, but it was the lost tapes of the 27 Club. And it was AI generated completely for Hendrix, Joplin, and everybody who's, you know, Morrison and everything. And it actually did a pretty decent job. It would fool you enough. But the one band it couldn't do was Nirvana. And it was just because of the soul of that dude's voice. And it could not break down the layered pedaling, because Hendrix would have a fuzz pedal or something, or maybe just be plugged in straight to the amp. But the layered, I mean, pedal sequencing, all of that, not only that, but the yell and scream and the variation of his voice, when they tried to generate Nirvana, it just sounded like fuzz. There was no melody, there was no nothing. So they had to see a chord structure, bring in a a cover band, and then a cover artist. They've since been able to digitize his voice. You could look it up, and it does not play when they, what they've been doing is layering. They'll put Biggie layered over Nas or Jay-Z, and because he influenced those artists, it can kind of sound like him. They've done that with Cobain a little bit, and it only works 
with songs by Courtney Love. <laughs> That's it. Radiohead, nothing. But, but a whole song, Celebrity Skin, meh. But still... There's that missing soul and variation of that. And I think that's the thing that we have to hold on to, that that's what we have. And I think in working collaboration with that stuff, I think is there's a future in that for sure. But I think um, that that's pretty instrumental and imperative. I did once hear, like, back in the early days of Netflix, I heard that they got their algorithm to, like, 90% effective, but the one movie that would just always confound it was Napoleon Dynamite, because, like, I don't know what, like, if you liked Napoleon Dynamite, there was no way to extrapolate from that what else you would like. Like, it, it could have gone anywhere. So, um, I don't know. That's interesting. That's a fable for our times. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the only th thing that is coming to me, again, is just, like, I don't want to oversimplify any of this, because, unfortunately, we all are very trapped in systems that are a lot bigger than us. And I don't want to pretend that it's possible to unplug because unfortunately we can't. But I do want to say that like at the end of the day, this is just computers. AI is just computers. It's not aliens. It's not, you, if you unplug all the computers, you get rid of all the AI. And so like, get off the computer. That's what I want to say to everybody. Like, get off the computer, go outside, touch grass, like, you know, like smell perfume. I don't know. Like, do the things that the computers can't do and that they can't be with you when you do it. Like, I went camping in Joshua Tree with my family and I left my phone at home and I thought it was going to be such a difficult thing. I was like, I'm leaving my phone for three days. And I just didn't even think about it because it, because I was just camping with my family and I didn't actually want to be on the phone. So, and the phone wasn't there constantly reminding me to go look at the phone. So I don't know, like I really pray that this can be some kind of potential turning point where we can remember this grip that we all still have on the part of our lives that's not computers and like move towards that. Thank you. Computers can't hope. That's pretty much it. I mean, we, we, we live in the dystopian hellscape. It's probably going to get a lot worse, but you know, we're not going to stop trying to make it better no matter how bad it gets because we have hope. And because we cannot, we can't stop trying to survive. We can't stop trying to push the idea of our own agenda. Look, the AI is part of that human creativity. Okay. But so it, it, it's still all coming from us and it comes from that quality that no machine can replicate, which is hope. Thank you. Love that. Thank you to our amazing panel. Round of applause for everybody. Thank you all for being here. Enjoy the rest of the festival. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarlane, and produced by Jennifer Morgan. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas, between June 1st and 4th, 2023. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com. <laughs>